listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. And today we are also joined by Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. Rebecca has her PhD in Renaissance literature. She is a speaker. She's the author of Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, which is absolutely excellent. If you haven't read it, you need to go buy it. You need to read it. It'd be a great winter read. And she has some forthcoming books coming out, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity and the Secular Creed, Engaging Five Contemporary claims. That one's coming out in April. Rebecca, we're so glad to have you on the show. I'm delighted to be here. Oh my goodness, we're so excited. You know, you and I have done a video call before and included in that video call was one of the more embarrassing moments of my ministry ever. Yeah, so I was trying to expound God's love in the midst of sacrifice uh, and in the midst of suffering in, in our world. And I was I was really kind of getting into my flow. And suddenly I realized I'd been muted by my head. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, what did I say? It was, it was so, Rebecca, it was like, one, it was, it, I'm not. I'm not over communicating this. It was one of the more climactic and gospel rooted moments of the whole thing. She's like really, really getting at this incredible because the, the, the question was, where's the good God in the midst of a pandemic? And Rebecca had been addressing our people and lots of people were on this call. It was right at the beginning of the pandemic. Interest was high and she was doing such a great job. And I accidentally muted her right at the moment yeah. of like it was accidental yeah <laughs> like for how long really think about women speaking on <laughs> are we talking like five seconds ten seconds uh i mean it was probably 10 or 12 seconds i would imagine ah, like because i i didn't realize my error somebody in zoom world somebody had just joined the call and their mic was not muted and it was making oh. sound and i went to click on to mute their mic but like their the the positions of the little icons change and i <laughs> When I clicked, from the moment I thought I need to meet this person's mic and I clicked to the moment I clicked, the, that, the profile changed over and it was now Rebecca. This and, is a story and he's sticking to it. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah mm -hmm. I think yeah. we could do an episode of like top 10 most public, you know, <sighs> ministry embarrassing moments for Kyle. Could we do we something all, like that? We all have them. No, I'm not yeah. unique in this. No, you proliferate them, yeah. <laughs> I do, I do. I don't know what it is. Uh, a fool, uh, a fool is drawn to folly, I guess. But um, listen, this season we're exploring Genesis one through eleven, and today I wanted to have Rebecca on to talk about how to handle hard questions that may come up with others when studying, reading, or discussing Genesis, because Rebecca has written. Um, not on Genesis in particular, although she's addressed it in her book, and I'm sure we'll address it in other writing work that she does in the future because it's kind of an unavoidable book when dealing with the scope of the Bible. But um, she has definitely spent time talking through how to address hard questions, not just in the details of specific questions, but how to be the kind of person who can address them in a righteous and holy and courageous and humble way. And so Genesis 1 through 11, it, you don't have to read very much of Genesis 1 through 11 to find yourself grappling with some hard questions. And if you're engaging with somebody about the Christian faith, it's not uncommon for hard questions they have about the Christian faith to be rooted in some of the story and passages and truth that we find in Genesis 1 through 11. So let's start at like the highest level possible here, Rebecca. What do we do when someone asks us a hard question about Genesis or about something else in the Bible 
and we just don't know the answer. I think the truth is always a good place to start in any conversation as a Christian. So when when that's happened to me, I have forced myself to say, and it's hard because I'm a proud person, I have forced myself to say, I don't know. Now, that's not necessarily all we have to say in that situation, because often, even if we don't have the specific answer to that person's question, and we want to say, you know, that's a really good question, and I don't know that I have a great answer for you, there will often be other things that we can point them to from our own knowledge of the scriptures. So maybe it's, I don't know what's happening in this particular passage in in the Old Testament. Mm. Um, But what I do know is that the the God of the whole Bible is the God who sent Jesus to the cross on our behalf. And the God who brought hope out of that situation in the resurrection and offers us eternal life. So it's not that there aren't going to be ways that we could go theologically, even when we feel like, oh, you know what? I, I honestly don't have a good answer to that. And I think also we can helpfully draw on the resources of other brothers and sisters to say, you know what, I don't know that I really have the expertise to answer this question of yours, but I've heard there's a really good book by Jen Wilkin or by some, somebody else who's actually done some more significant thinking. Now, I'd love to either read that and get back to you or maybe we could read that together. There could be ways to actually turn that that moment where we, we might feel like, gosh, we're really letting the Lord down because we don't have a good answer to this question. Actually, we could use that as an opportunity to show... Um, gospel humility, which right. sadly people don't often expect from Christians, and to invite people into a conversation. I was going to say I'm having two simultaneous thoughts. The first is we should just throw out our entire next Q&A session. Uh, and the second is let's get Rebecca to answer all the questions the next time we do <laughs> a Q&A session. <laughs> I'm curious. I'm curious how, um, I know you have a PhD in, in literature, and so I'm curious as someone who my, my only, you know, my, my training per se that I bring to bear on the way that I approach the scriptures is related to having an English degree, not, a, not even a master's, just a, just a BA. But I'm wondering how much of your thinking around um, how to utilize the scriptures with regard to answering questions, like how does, I'm curious how your training in literature relates to the way that you handle the scriptures. That's a great question. I, I think one of the huge mistakes that, we, particularly honestly as evangelical Christians, have made in the last several decades is not helping people to properly understand the difference, that the, the true and literal, literal are not the same thing, that they're not kind of interchangeable words. And I think, I mean, you see it even in, in surveys that people do of pastor opinions and they say, hey, which of these do you agree with? The Bible is the word of God and should be taken literally in every in every case. Mm-hmm. That's a number one, which shows your highest level of commitment to the Bible. The second might be, you know, the Bible is the word of God, but shouldn't always be taken literally. And that's sort of seen as a less faithful way of relating to the Bible. Actually, we only have to look at the words of Jesus himself to see that Jesus uses metaphors all day long. And that often his most important and sometimes his hardest teachings are communicated to us in a metaphor. Yeah. So I think for me, having done a PhD that was on prison metaphors in Shakespeare, one of, one of the sensibilities that I always bring to the scriptures is to say, okay, let's look for the metaphors and let's remember that actually a truth enclosed in a metaphor can be at least as true as a, a truth communicated in literal language. And in fact, it can be true in a way that draws our hearts more than literal truth does. And even to add to that, if the God of the Bible is the God who actually made us in the first place, then while I might look for a metaphor and sort of look around me and think, okay, what what is like what? Maybe A is like B. 
I'll compare those two. God can actually create things in order for them to be metaphors mm. to help us understand how he loves us and, and who he is. So I think reclaiming the the, the truth value of, of metaphors as we approach the scriptures is incredibly important and will help us to not get stuck on, oh, well, I always have to assume that the, the quite literal reading is necessarily the most faithful reading when often it's definitely not. How, how many of the hard questions that people come to you with are related to that issue? How often are they misreadings versus actual um, questions that are dealing with a truth about God that is hard to absorb? Mm. I think for Christians, in my experience, who've come to me with, with worries about the Bible, it's often around not really knowing how to navigate that. Mm -hmm. And so feeling anxious that if they read something, and I, I think you guys in earlier episodes of, of this particular series that I've listened to, you've done a wonderful job of saying, you know, this is what some of these chapters in Genesis are. Uh, these are the questions they're trying to answer. These are the questions they're not trying to answer. Mm -hmm. And that often we kind of bring the wrong questions to the text and try to sort of squeeze out uh, the answers that may not, may not be the ones that the original um, the audience was expecting or the, or the original author was an, an anticipating. And so I think from, from Christians, it's, it's particular questions like that. Often from non-Christians, I'll just get the question, well, do you take the Bible literally? Right. With almost, if I say yes, then it's like, okay, you're one of those fundamentalists. Mm -hmm. If I say, well, sometimes they say, well, you're, you know, you're, you're just a pick and choose person. Like, why mm -hmm. would you have this selective reading of, of the scriptures? And so, you know, trying to walk through with people the fact that actually typically it's clear from, from the scriptures themselves and from the context whether we should take something as a, um, you know, metaphorically or literally, um, and that it's not actually hypocritical or inconsistent to treat some passages as literal and others as metaphors. It's actually what we do all day long, even in our normal conversations, and it's certainly what we do with any, any text. Sure. Mm. Rebecca, one thing that I I don't think this is the exact language you use, but from the from your writings that I've that I've gathered, and <clears throat> you mentioned this already once, that one of the things that's important when people are asking hard questions is being the right kind of person. That the kind of person that you just said can say, I I don't know. One of the things that I learned early as a pastor, I didn't know I was doing this, but I I, I was saying I don't know to questions. Mm. And Kyle, I don't know if you remember this, we would get feedback on some of the learning environments that we were creating at the village. And that was for some people, one of the highest values for them when they were giving us feedback. Mm. They said, I've never had a pastor say, I don't know. Yeah. And what happened is it wasn't just that we were a certain kind of person. It created a certain kind of environment that wasn't like a, people are used to kind of Twitter back and forth or hot takes on, you know, cable news channels whenever there's hard issues. But if you can create an environment where you can have a conversation, whether it's hard questions in Genesis or hard questions in life, where there can be a genuine back and forth, I don't know that there's a better environment to create for learning for both, for both people, yeah. for both learners. But what, what I find is, is when hard questions are asked, sometimes it really isn't to learn. It's to try to prove a point. Like you're asking a question mm -hmm. to, to prove a point. But if you can say, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but let's, let's find out together, that automatically dismantles people's maybe aggressive nature that sometimes they're mm -hmm. entering these mm -hmm. conversations. And you can actually then have an opportunity to create real learning for both the person that's asking the question and yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I agree 100%. And I feel like it. what it does is it definitely, I feel like a lot of times when somebody has these serious questions, they're, um, oh, I don't know if this is y'all's experience, but I feel oftentimes the question for them is high stakes, 
Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you almost just need to de-escalate a little bit. I mean, that may sound strange to say, but just by saying like, you know what, like, I'm not quite certain or I, I'm unsure or I don't know, or let's explore this together or maybe consider this are all very faithful ways of trying to not lower the stakes, so to speak, but certainly not try to mirror like you've got this urgency. This question must be answered right now on your terms in the way that you want it to be answered. And I'm almost a hundred percent sure that I'm not going to be able to deliver at that high level of expectation. Mm-hmm. I, I just add to that, I think there are situations where the right thing to do is de-escalate like you're describing. Mm-hmm. I think there are others where actually the right thing to do is to escalate, mm-hmm. but to do so from the same side of the table as them. Mm-hmm. So sometimes if I'm doing a Q&A, and especially I, I try to ask non-believers or those who have disagreed with a lot of what I've said to, to speak first, and a question will come, and, and what I'll typically do if it's a hard question is I will first say, you know, that's an extremely important question. And then I want to say something like, every single person in this room should care about that question. Yeah. Like, how can we believe in a loving God in the face of all of this suffering? How can we believe? So almost to to take their question and to fill it out, to make it the the biggest and best and strongest and most devastating question it could be Mm -hmm. before we then bring the scripture's resources to it. Because then... We're, we're validating the fact, I mean, it, obviously it depends on the question, but we're validating the fact if it is an important I6 question in which they are personally invested, we're saying, yeah, we think this matters too. Yeah. We think this is a real and important issue. Mm-hmm. And having really understood that, we then will look at what the scriptures say mm-hmm. rather than just going for the immediate, yeah, that doesn't matter because of this, or here's my glib sure. answer. Yeah. Um, but anything that we can do to get ourselves on the same side of, of the table as, as the questioner, because we all know, and we see this politically, but we see this in every other domain as well. If people don't feel like you're in the same tribe as them, they're not going to listen to you. That's right. right. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. So, uh, Rebecca, lots of hard questions emerge from the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But one of the most challenging for believers, typically, for most believers, is around creation. So, like, I mean, how do you talk about the doctrine of creation with seekers and skeptics? Mm-hmm. Like, where do you start with them? If they come to you with a question about the origins of the world, I'm not asking, like, these are like snowflakes. Everybody's is going to be a little bit different. But I guess just broadly, mm. what would be some things that you'd want to make sure I really focus on? People tend to assume that modern science is essentially an alternative hypothesis to belief in a creator God. And that yeah. the more that science has won, the more that belief in a creator God has has lost. And that we Christians, we're sort of it's like standing on the sandcastle at the beach as wave after wave of scientific gravity washes over it. And the castle gets smaller and smaller, but we're still standing there, you know, as if it's holding together. When you actually look at the, the history of science, you realize that rather than being an alternative to belief in a creator God, the first modern scientists developed what we now see as the modern scientific method because they believed in a creator God who was both rational and free. So there's a guy um, named Hans Helbson, who's a professor at Princeton University, and he's one of the top philosophers of science in the world. He was the person from whom I, I you know, properly learned this. And he said, you know, the, the, the folks who were originally crafting what we now assume to be normal in terms of scientific um, discovery, they knew from the Bible that God had created the world and they knew that he was a, a rational lawmaking God. And so they thought, huh, I wonder if the universe that God made 
runs according to rational, consistent laws. Mm -hmm. But then they also realize that the God of the Bible is completely free. And so he could have created the universe any way he liked. And therefore, the only way to find out what these laws undergirding the universe are is to actually go and look. Mm-hmm. So we see at the, the beginning, the, the, the birth of what we now see as, as science came out of theism. Mm. And Hans Halverson, again, as, as one of probably the top four philosophers of science in the world, he says that even today, theism gives us a better philosophical foundation for science than atheism. In fact, atheism doesn't give you a philosophical foundation for science at all. That's right. So I think often starting there with folks who have kind of assumed that science has dis- discredited the idea of a creator God is helpful just in terms of reframing the conversation. Um, and then even looking kind of morally at the things that we learn from Genesis 1 to 3, uh, there are so many things that today are assumed to be self-evident, you know, partly because of the um, Declaration of Independence of this this country. So many trees that are assumed to be self-evident that actually are specifically Christian trees that mm-hmm. come to us from the creation passages. Mm. So you feel like... Uh, <laughs> I think that one of the things that's fascinating about a lot of conversations I have around creation and Christian origins is that exactly what you said uh, is, whether it's implicit or explicit, there is this idea that science, whatever that is, it's almost often treated like it's like some codified book somewhere, right? Like it's an, <laughs> like that like exists and everything that's uh, discovered is added to this book. And this is, it's all agreed upon by anybody who's not suckered in by religious impulses or mythology. But okay, science has just kind of thrown out all that stuff. We don't need any of that stuff. We've just got, I believe in science. I was talking with somebody a couple of days ago in my neighborhood and they're like, yeah, I'm not really religious. I'm more scientific. And I was like, like, well, what do you mean? What do you mean when you say that you're more scientific? Like, does that mean that you, you test everything? You believe in some other defined body of knowledge somewhere? So if somebody just told, like, was just a, an average listener of Knowing Faith and they have somebody that they... Uh, are trying to share the gospel with, and that person just tells them very broadly, oh, I can't believe Christianity because, you know, science. Mm. What what would you, like, what would be the next step for you with somebody like that? Like, <laughs> like what? how would you just, how would you encourage them to be like, okay, tell me more about what you believe about specific things or broadly, how do you assess truth claims in the world? I mean, how mm. would you kind of mm. counsel them or coach them to talk about that? Yeah, I think always to ask questions to understand more of what somebody believes. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about where many people stand today is that on the one hand, they cling firmly to science as the only real arbiter of universal truth. Truth that's true whether or not you believe in it. Truth that's you know true everywhere and every place. So they have that in their one hand. And in the other hand, they're grasping onto things like Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Racism is wrong. The Holocaust should never have happened. Uh, the, the, the men and women are equal. Things that require us to have a different set of tools than science can give us. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been reading a book by uh, Yuval Noah Harari, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, which came out a few years ago. It's been this massive global bestseller. And one of the really interesting things about it is, you know, he's writing as an atheist Israeli historian and claiming to give us the sort of real scientific and um, sociological and historical 
uh, view of, of Homo sapiens in, in the course of their development to where we are today. And he'll say things like, um, human beings have no natural rights, just as spiders, hyenas, and chimpanzees have no natural rights. You know, he'll say that the, the scientific study of Homo sapiens has embarrassingly little, little to do with the idea of universal um, human rights and equal human value. Uh, he says that, that human rights are in fact a Christian fiction. So all of these, these moral claims that at least my non-Christian friends hold to be self-evident or at least objectively true, it's not just like racism is wrong is my opinion and if yours is different, that's fine. It's like, no, right. no, these are, these are real objective mm -hmm. truths that are true mm -hmm. whether or not you or I believe in them. Not only have no foundation in science, but they're actually quite dis, sort of they're, they're, they're at odds with what people believe if they hold a, a totally naturalistic view on the basis of science. Now, I think the other way to go with that, that, that I think we should avoid, is to say, well, because some scientists, you know, the Richard Dawkinses of the world, claim that science has proved a naturalistic world where there is no God and there is no creation, um, that we shouldn't buy into that, actually. I think we should lay claim of science as, a, as a, ultimately a Christian um, practice um, but to say that whereas you know, science can tell us lots of really useful and interesting things about who we are as humans, there are really important questions that it's not designed to answer. Mm -hmm. And actually, we need to look to the scriptures to answer those questions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And not just we can look to the scriptures, but that the answers we'll find there are actually pretty coherent and persuasive. Yeah. And that, you know, if I think about myself, from a scientific point of view, you could say, well, I'm a mammal. Um, and that's true. I mean, I've got three kids to prove that I, I, I meet all the criteria from which you deduce that some, mm -hmm. some you know, being is a mammal. Um, there's no part of me that isn't a mammal. It's not like as Christians, we need to sort of find that physical piece of me that doesn't fit with the mammal idea. I'm scientifically only atoms and molecules. There's not a sort of special spiritual part of me that you could deduce, like examine through the scientific method. But none of these things mean that I am not also a beloved child of God made in his mm -hmm. image and redeemed by the blood of Christ. Like those, I think sometimes as Christians, we, we try to sort of chip away at scientific explanations as if we're sort of trying to find that little space for God rather than saying, do you know what? God is in charge of the whole show. <laughs> God actually mm -hmm. created every inch of me. God made yep. me as a mammal, but not just as a mammal. He also called me into a relationship with him. Yeah. And that's precisely what we're seeing in the creation account is this yeah. psychosomatic unity that God is creating the whole person uh, and that this there is not these false dichotomies that maybe are kind of blown out in the science and religion conversation, mm -hmm. either regardless of what way you're driving on that street. So if you were going to sit down, um, Rebecca, and read Genesis with a non-Christian, how how would you do that? I mean, like, genuinely, if you're like, hey, let's do about like somebody's like, I've got you. So they accept your invitation to mm. read the book of Genesis with you. How would you actually do that? Mm. I mean, and I mean, like, be as detailed as you as you want to be. <laughs> I would start at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> good. good answer. A good, good place answer. to start. Honestly, so I, I think what I would do with a non-Christian, and this is just me, so I'm, uh -huh. I'm not saying this is how everybody should do it, but this is sure. who I am and how I operate, what I would probably do is I would start at the beginning and I would read Genesis in the light of other potential accounts of why the world is as it is and, and who we are within it. So I would actually have them read something like, you'll know Harari's Sapiens um, or Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. 
And, and I would say, because I think often, uh, not only are we coming to the Genesis text with, with not quite the right questions or thinking that they're going, it's going to answer the, the wrong sorts of questions, different sorts of questions than it, than it does, but we're not actually recognizing what the alternative is. And I think for, for a lot of secular folk today, they think that there is a perfectly coherent secular worldview that does all the work that Christianity does for us without having to believe in crazy things like this, you know, God who made the world and this man who rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, like all this crazy Christian stuff. What they don't realize is that there isn't an alternative, there is not a compelling alternative that supports the things that they most deeply believe mm. without having to reference Christian things. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, working through the... I, obviously start with with genesis one and, and read it with them and, and ask them you know what do you see here and right. kind of start with their reactions um, and have a conversation on the basis of that but i would want to bring in i would want to kind of keep referencing the fact that this is telling a story which you know i know you guys covered this in an earlier episode for the first hearers it was a story that was in contrast to mm-hmm. other creation narratives and other explanations of why humans are, are like they are for us today those aren't our alternatives in our mental worlds, but there are alternative stories. Right. Yeah. And so I'd want to run those stories in parallel and see how each of them cashes out. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your copy today. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your your copy today. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. Yeah. I have a question though. Doug, Kyle set you up because we've been doing a series on Genesis to say, if you sat down to read Genesis with an unbeliever, but there are a lot of opinions out there on where you should start in the scriptures with someone who's a skeptic. And I'm curious what you would, uh, outside of our Genesis um, requirements for this podcast <laughs> today, where would you take someone? I'm asked that question a lot. I'm curious what your response would be. I actually want to hear everybody's answer to this question. That's a really interesting mm, yeah. question. But yeah, Rebecca, why don't you kick mm. us off? If you'd asked me a decade ago what my favorite gospel was, I would definitely have said John. 
Mm-hmm. Like I have a long-term love affair with John's Gospel. Today, I think I might read Luke with somebody first. And the reason is, Luke's incredible, right? We all know that. But Luke is the gospel that most focuses on and prioritizes the weak and marginalized and women. Hmm. And I think for a lot of my contemporaries, you know, secular friends and, and contemporaries today, a lot of the questions about Christianity are actually less about questions of origins and science, et cetera, et cetera, and more sort of deeply moral questions where they assume that Christianity is on the side of, you know, the white male chauvinism mm-hmm. um, and against all other things. And, and I think Luke's gospel just walks us so beautifully through Jesus's care for the poor, weak and marginalized, his love for women and the ways in which he truly changed the world in his teaching as well as in his death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. So I, I, today I would walk through Luke with somebody, but I would be torn because I also would really want to read John with them. Mm-hmm. Those are great. Kyle, what would you say? Um, yeah, it would be Matthew. And I would have said very similar to Rebecca 10 years ago. I would have definitely said Gospel of John. And actually that's how I was like taught to read the Bible yeah. with like a new believer or a non-Christian person. It was like, John, 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 John. Mm-hmm. But after doing that a lot, um, I found myself going to Matthew a ton. Mm-hmm. And um, I think partly um, uh, with you right out of the gate with Matthew, you get son of David, son of Abraham. Mm-hmm. So you get to go all the whole story. And then when you get into Matthew, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, I think that if you can tee that up the right way, then you get to get this whole story of like, yes, this is this great teacher and he has some incredible things to say, uh, but this is the Lord speaking. This is God speaking to us mm-hmm. uh, and, and giving us his vision for his kingdom. Uh, and so I have found much more fruitfulness uh, in going through the gospel of Matthew than I ever did going through the gospel of Luke. But for much the same reason, Rebecca, that you mentioned regarding your mm-hmm. transition from John to Luke is that I think that some of the ethical components are just a little bit more pronounced in uh, Luke and Matthew than they are in John. Uh, but Matthew is typically where I go now. Jennifer? I would say, <laughs> I would say, <laughs> I would say uh, Matthew, but only because I'm more familiar with Matthew than I am with Luke. I've spent more time there. I, I think it'd be a toss-up for me between those two, though. I think uh, you... Rebecca, you have some really good reasons to go with Luke, but for me, I'm on a I'm a, I'm on a firmer footing in Matthew just because I spent more time there, and I like the fulfillment theme in Matthew so much. I think it can be helpful, um, but again, when you're dealing with someone who thinks the whole thing is fakey, fakey, don't mm-hmm. know the fulfillment is that strong of an argument. I am surprised at, at John being the first choice for so many because, at, at bare minimum, it's not synoptic, and so I think it's. It's hard for people to follow what's Did going you just, on. Like, downgrade. The uh, I will. Can I? Can I have a coda to this? Yeah. Um, I don't know if you guys ever have sort of theological or Bible crushes where there's like a passage or a particular yeah. chapter oh, yeah. that you just can't keep can't yeah. talk about enough. So John 11, the raising of Lazarus. My my friends laugh at me because I'd be like, I was talking with a friend today and I got to have some gospel conversation with them. And they'd be like, guess where you went in the Bible? I was like, yes, I went to John 11 again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But it's just so stunning. So I think, I think maybe what I do is Luke with a side serving of John. Yeah. And those 
again, those conversations with women, like the, the woman of yeah. the well, Martha and, and the yes. of Lazarus's death. It's just so powerful. I, I get that. And mine, and mine would be, my, my thing I can't stop talking about is the Sermon on the Mount. So that's why mm-hmm. I keep getting dragged. And I'm like, Sermon on the Plane, sure. But why are you <laughs> it, Luke? Come on, like give us the whole thing. So uh, so yeah, but that, it, is, it is really true that you do have your, your spaces that you've just been drawn to over and over again. And those are the, I mean, I think that's a good point for those who are listening. I don't, and JT hasn't answered yet. So we want to give him a chance. And I know he loves the Gospel of John. So he's probably going to say that. But uh, you should you should trust your instinct based on where the Lord has drawn you repeatedly and know that your most authoritative voice, maybe that's not, or your, even your most pastoral or compassionate voice is going to come out of the passages that you have had to deal with the most, the longest. Bingo. Yeah, bingo. I agree with that 100%. JT, what's your answer? My fake answer is uh, Ecclesiastes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're the worst. Vanity of vanity. Life is vanity. Can't we all agree there? (laughs) No, my answer is John and primarily for John 13 to 17. That's an area I've just spent a lot of time both Mm -hmm. in academic work, but also just in personal personal Mm -hmm. work, just abiding in the Lord and abiding in Jesus and then inter-Trinitarian relationships and how we get to enter into that and the oneness of fellowship with God. So, yeah, for me, it's it's and, and also it's nostalgic. That's that's the passage that I went to when I became a Christian mm-hmm. in college mm-hmm. as a freshman. Campus Crusade said, "Go read John." I read it like seventeen times that month, and so it's just uh, that's that's my happy place. Yeah. Well, uh, keeping it beyond Genesis right now, since we are <laughs> since we are, since we got there, we we've we dove in and we dove back out, which is good. Um, and I anticipated we would do that. What, what what would you say, Rebecca, to kind of land the plane here? What would you say to someone who's listening to this? who has doubts about the goodness or truthfulness of God's word and God's creation. Like maybe they just are like, I don't like the idea that God um, designed uh, humanity as men and women. Like I just, I don't like that. Or I don't like how God has structured that. Um, Or I don't like, um, I don't like that, that, that God was sovereign over a world in which uh, brokenness or or sin was allowed, ordained or permitted. Um, Mm. These are things. And like, what would you just say to somebody who's like, I have doubts around this? How would you encourage them? Rebecca, mm-hmm. can, I, can I like add like a caveat to that question? Because I wanted to ask you this earlier, sure. I didn't get a chance. And if you can't, if, if you can weave these things together, great. That, that's what I'm hoping you can do. But Kyle just said something that triggered a question I wanted to ask you. Like wh- one, of the, one of the challenges that I feel like I face that I'm trying to learn how to do it in an appropriate way with perhaps my secular friends or my neighbors, colleagues who are asking the kinds of questions that Kyle just asked is I'm trying to find generous and humble ways to show them that the reason they're asking that question is because they're living on the exhaust fumes of a Judeo-Christian worldview. Like even as you just said about Luke, like the the, the whole point about caring for the marginalized, the weak, the oppressed, you know, whatever is because they've been formed and shaped by the ethical and moral uh, worldview uh, that the Bible gives us, and they're yeah. using it to deny the Bible. Does that make sense? So it, like, it makes absolute sense. Yes, okay. yes. And I think it's an incredibly important thing for us as Christians to understand, and for us to communicate graciously to our non-Christian friends. I, I found I don't know if you guys have read uh, British historian Tom Holland's book Dominion: How the Christian, yes. uh, oh, the Christian so Revolution Remade it's the World. Fantastic. So he, for those who, who haven't come across him, is a British historian, not a Christian. And gave up believing in God as, as a kid because he found the, the Greek and Roman gods far more attractive than this, you know, guy who died on a cross. And he's written this massive popular history of, of the last two thousand years of, of Christianity in the West. And in the course of his research, he discovered that things that today would seem like 
basic moral common sense, both to me as a Christian and to him as a non-Christian and to, you know, the secular humanist society are actually specifically Christian truths. That's right. <clears throat> so in particular, and I mentioned that this, the idea of universal human rights, uh, Tom Holland points out that when, when that was formulated, um, you know, in the, the late 1940s, in the sort of aftermath of, of the horrors of World War II, uh, the, the fact that it was absolutely drawing on Christ, specifically Christian tradition had to be quite carefully disguised for there to be a hope that it would be adopted by a whole bunch of different countries that, that where Christianity may not be the majority religion. That's exactly right. And, and that um, sort of repackaging of, of Christian understandings has been really successful, mm-hmm. which in some sense is good news. Mm-hmm. And in other sense is, is problematic because it means that we, as we talk with our Christian friends now, you know, they also hold it to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. Mm-hmm. Do you ever but ask them why they believe that? Yeah, well, they, they believe that because they've been told that that's just what is. Right. It, it's a, it's a, a truth on which we sort of stake our lives without realizing that it needs to be defended. And I think both what, uh, what both Yuval and the Harari and Sapiens does and what Tom Holland does in Dominion from kind of somewhat different angles is expose the fact that our, our idea that, that human beings are morally equal, that men and women are fundamentally of equal moral value, that the poor and the weak and the marginalized have any claim to make on the, the rich and the strong and the powerful. All of these are Christian ideas. And so Tom Holland points out that even in our most fraught conversations around gender and sexuality, for example, both conservative theological Christians and, and um, you know, the sort of most progressive secular folk are actually trading on the <laughs> with the same terms, thinking, you know, the historically marginalized should be cared for. Mm-hmm. Uh, the minority shouldn't be just trampled down by the majority. The the strong shouldn't just triumph over the weak. And that's a Christian idea. That's not a self-evident truth. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. That's good. I've I've found that it, it, it's important when you're asking those questions to ask them hum- like humbly, gently, because it can mm-hmm. be a disorienting thing for somebody. Absolutely. To like, wait a second, you're questioning the very foundation of my, of like my morals. Yeah. And you're saying yeah. that I don't have a basis for why I feel the way that I feel about the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the oppressed. But, but slowly it's important to show them that other parts of the world do not share those same quote unquote self-evident truths. And there's yeah. no basis to think that, that we will in the West 200 years from now or 500 years from now, unless they are defended and maintained for a specific reason, not just mm-hmm. because it's convenient. Yeah, no, that's certainly true. I wonder if you could leave us, Rebecca, with sort of the attitude that we should go into these conversations with. I, I mean, we're in a moment in human history where every conversation is about winning or losing, it feels like, um, or, or silencing opponents. And um, when you sat down to um, help people move toward conversation points around these things, what, 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 what guidance would you give us about entering into these hard conversations with people who are coming from a place of unbelief? Yeah, it's so important. I think first, wherever we can, to take the lowest place. Uh, and to uh, have a, a humble posture and to reinforce the fact that we are sinners saved by grace, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom you and I are the, the foremost, so mm-hmm. that we have a sort of moral humility as we approach people and that we try not to let our own egos get tangled up. I mean, sometimes 
we think that we're defending Jesus when in fact we're defending our own egos. Mm. I had that strong temptation. Um, and when somebody comes with hostility to meet that with love, because that's what Christians are, are called to do, you know, to love even our enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the more that we can do that, the more we can kind of open up that space where we feel like we're on the same side of the table as the other person. Cause we're not saying I'm on some moral high ground looking down on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and people do become disarmed. If, if people come to you with hostility and you meet them with love, it, it's a powerful weapon. Um, it's the only, it's the, the best and only weapon we really have as, as Christians as we engage with others, but it's, it's actually really powerful. Um, and so I think finding ways to agree with the challenge that they've placed before us in the ways that we can, whilst also showing them Jesus and, and his um, in, entirely countercultural and sort of world upturning view of, of everything, whether it's sort of human power or, um, you know, the, the route to a- actual life versus actual death, um, just to wherever we can bring Jesus and his death and resurrection into the center of our conversation. Um, and that's never hard. I feel like there, there's no kind of apologetics question that gets asked that there isn't a short step to taking them to Jesus and the cross, because that's really the, the center around which everything else is going to revolve. Mm-hmm. Um, but doing that so that we're lifting Jesus up, even as we, we let ourselves down, I think is, is going to be the best approach. I love that. Rebecca, let me, let me just say to the audience, if you are not familiar with Rebecca's book, you, you need to ask Santa for that book for Christmas. <laughs> it is, it is wow. that good. It's worth, uh, it's worth getting, get the book. It's very good. She hasn't asked us to say that. She's probably embarrassed that we keep talking about it. She's probably worried that you just uh, advocated for a high view of Santa in relation to her book. But I was obviously being comical. If the listener wants to extrapolate that I believe in Santa, then that's a very uncharitable read. But whatever, Brad, we're going to need that um, cut out. In exactly right. Better put jingle bells behind it and just make it like, let's just go full holidays on it. Um, well, listen, uh, I'm glad that we've been able to have Rebecca on this show. Honored that you jumped on. And listen, if you've been listen to the show and you want to join the conversation you can find us on social media at knowing faith podcast we're on twitter instagram and facebook that way uh, if you're not following rebecca on twitter she's a great twitter follow and there's very few of those left so go follow <laughs> go go follow rebecca on twitter uh if you want to find out more about what's going on with knowing faith you can go to patreon.com slash knowing faith and our next episode we will finish up genesis 1 through 11 by looking kind of teasing what comes next with the life of abraham which we'll cover in the spring Grace and peace. 